full house today. Wow. Well, thank you for being here and thank you for practicing together today. This morning, we're beginning a series of short talks on Sakito Kisen's Soan Ka, or the Song of the Grassroof Hermitage, which we recited during service this morning. Sometimes the title of this song or this poem is translated as the Song of the Grassroof Hut. And I was reminded of that over the past weekend, where someone, this one, got a new name, a lineage name, or a private name that has the word hut in it. Hoan, Phoenix Hut. And by the way, it's Ho-on, not Oan. <laughs> Some people thought it was Oan. I got an email from my sewing teacher who said, Oan Taishin, they're really trying to make sure you don't leave. (laughs) They named you after the temple. (laughs) Told this to Roshi, and Roshi said, that's not a bad idea. We should rename you. Oan Taishin. Then he really can't leave. Hoan. Hoan. Everyone that receives precepts in the Phoenix Cloud lineage of Kobunchino Otagawa Roshi becomes a Ho, a Phoenix. And it's interesting to hear some of their names. There's a Cloud Phoenix, and there's a Completion Phoenix, and there's a Laughing Phoenix, and many, many, many more. And if you hang around a bit, you'll hear some of these names. And I think next year we're due to have two more people join the lineage and become Hos, Phoenix. Yet many of the names that I've heard in the past had a particular arrangement to them. Again, there was a cloud phoenix and a laughing phoenix and a completion phoenix and a bright or luminous phoenix. But the one given and received last Sunday appears different. Phoenix Hot. This is not the lineage name I expected, in a sense. I had two or three that I thought were likely candidates, and yet, despite my best efforts, I can't use the Vulcan mind meld on <laughs> Roshi, and I think that's actually a really good thing. It's a close connection between teacher and student, but it doesn't need to be that close. (laughs) There's another sense, though, in which it is exactly the name that I expected. Um, At first, there was a feeling of curiosity and, and puzzlement. For those of you that were at the ceremony, you know that Roshi shared it and then said some things about like my once present and then absent and has now returned again at Roshi's urging email signature. And I thought I was named after my email signature. That's a little puzzling. I have a story about why, but I'll save that for another time. The general theme of it is Roshi said enough and what was appropriate for the general public. 
On the backside of every rakasu, the smaller robe that you see some people wearing here in the zendo, the side that's against your torso, the side that the public cannot see um, and is generally not allowed to see without permission of the one wearing it. So always ask if you'd like to see the back of someone's rakasu. Is an inscription of some sort along with other images, characters, stamps, and words, ideograms too, lest Jarreau from California yell at me for calling them characters, from the teacher to the student, written on a piece of white silk or white cotton. The backside is the backside in part to reflect the intimate connection between the teacher and the student and that nearby or far away, they are always close to one another. Roshi is right here. She and I are right here together. If I'm elsewhere, if I do some traveling next year and I wear my rakasu, she'll still be right here with me. And when the day comes that Roshi is no longer here, she'll still be here with me when I wear that rakasu that I sewed and she inscribed. It's an intimate connection between teacher and student. It's a personal connection. Dogen describes the relationship between teacher and student using the image of twining vines. Save that for another Dharma talk. My first teacher, Koan Gary Janka Sensei, who gave me the Dharma name or the public name Taishin, which means peaceful heart mind, wrote an inscription that had a certain spirit to it on my first rakasu, the one that has the ring on it. Roshi, my third teacher and my guiding teacher, also wrote an inscription on the backside of my new rakasu that has a certain spirit to it. And I sat with the inscription and I did a little digging and discovered to my satisfaction its inspiration. And immediately I understood why this name that at first seemed puzzling and curious was given to me. And if it's not too bold of me to say, very clever, Roshi, well done. I really can't help smiling every time I hear it. And when I say it, ho on, it's got a nice something to it. You know what I mean. Keep flying, keep burning, keep being reborn, Phoenix Hunt, as Shoho said. But enough about that. I'm supposed to be talking about a poem. So as I was sitting with this name, I was reminded of a particular section of Kisan's poem. And it reads, a great vehicle bodhisattva trusts without doubt. The middling or lowly can't help wondering, will this hut perish or not? Perishable or not, the original master is present, not dwelling south or north, east or west. I'm not inclined to spend time here on the first line. If you want to hear a Dharma talk about trusting without doubt or about confidence, you can listen to my Dharma talk from our recent retreat. It's all about confidence. 
a lot of my talks are about confidence and how important that is for us in our practice. I'm also not inclined to spend time on the second line, but the third line is where I want to spend some time this morning. What is it that some cannot help wondering about? Will this hut perish or not? Perhaps you have never asked yourself whether a hut will perish or not. This hut, for example, Oan Zendo, for Oan means hut of harmony. But we've also been talking more often these days about the next 20 years and about how we're in a period of transition, but that's not why I want to talk about this question this morning. When you sit down for meditation, when you sit zazen, when you let, as we sometimes say, the self settle itself on the self, I wonder what you find yourself sitting down with. Sometimes, I suppose, there's bodily and mental activity that's pleasant. During our recent retreat, for example, I found myself sitting from time to time with a lot of thoughts about the ceremony that was coming up at the end of it. And those were very pleasant thoughts. I was imagining how the room would look with so many people in it. I was imagining lots of smiling faces, expressions of joy, smiles and laughter. And these thoughts were often accompanied by feelings of bodily warmth and relaxation. And sometimes while I was sitting, I would smile and then I would try really hard to not giggle. And maybe you know this feeling when you sit. Other times, sitting is what I will call neutral. Um, neutrality is sometimes also called indifference for us. It's one of the three feelings that comprises the feeling skanda. The other two are pleasure and pain. And what I mean by sitting being neutral, I think can be seen by way of the ocean. There's activity when you're sitting is this way because there's never not activity in the ocean. There's never not activity in your body and mind. But this activity is neither waves to surf or waves that encourage throwing cargo overboard in an effort to save the ship in a storm. You might think waves to surf is pleasurable and joyful and if you're throwing cargo overboard, you're probably panicking and scared. Sometimes we say when we're out on the water that the ocean is calm or is quiet or is peaceful. These are activities, but they're not necessarily joyful ones. They don't have that kind of elation, whipping up of energy that other activities do. We might say that everything is resting in a sense, and yet there is still activity. And sometimes sitting is like this. Still other times when I sit down, I'm immediately confronted with thoughts that take the form of, will this hut perish or not? And the expected bodily accompaniments. Of the latter, there's a lot of tension in the body. For me, tension tends to be concentrated in the shoulders, in the back of the neck, in the lower back sometimes. I can also feel it if I'm really whipped up in my face and in my hands. 
Sometimes we sit with what's called the cosmic mudra like this, and I'm going to exaggerate, but if there's a lot of tension and I'm really worried, my mudra will look like this. And it's like, what's going on? Right, it's just, it's tight, not gently resting together. My breathing becomes shallow and short. My eyes often want to close. Of the former, there is something or other about which I tend to be anxious or concerned. I might be feeling hurried by something or worried about something. Sometimes it's financial matters. It seems everyone's worried about money these days and has been since the creation of money. Interesting creation, by the way. Sometimes that focus is the ever-growing list of obligations and responsibilities that I have. Still other times, it's something that I said or I did, or it's something that I didn't say or I didn't do. Something that might be prime for recording in my precept journal. There's a pull towards what Roshi sometimes calls la-la land. And I wonder if sitting sometimes feels this way for you as well. Will I be able to finish such and such today? Am I going to be ready for what's coming tomorrow? I have this thing, fill in the blank. Will I see so-and-so so that I can check in with them about, will this hut perish or not? Another poem from around the same time as Kison's Grass Roof Hermitage opens with the following. Serenely carefree, nothing to change. Carefree, what need for words? Real mind does not scatter, so no need to stop worldly cares. The past is already the past. The future cannot be reckoned. Sitting serenely carefree, why would anyone pay a call? Seeking to work on things outside, it's all foolishness. The poem is titled Rakudoka, or Enjoying the Way, by Nangaku Myosan, an 8th century ancestor. Sometimes sitting is this way, but not all the time, and maybe not often for you, certainly not for me. And so the question I want to ask is why? What is the thing behind the thing, or what is driving my bus, as my sponsor Jim might say? Perhaps it is in part what I will call momentum. The Oxford American Dictionary says, momentum is the impetus and driving force gained by the development of a process or course of events. Impetus, driving force. Sometimes it feels as though this is why things are the way they are because things are very much this way. What do we hear all the time? Forward, onward. Done with today, on to tomorrow, 
progress, innovation, bigger, better, brighter. I've run out of beads, <laughs> so I'll stop. Our culture and society is a remarkable source of energy, propelling us into the next thing before I find we've really had a chance to find out what's going on in the thing we're in. And this propulsion has a certain tilt to it. A tilt that continually reinvites feelings of anxiety and dissatisfaction, insecurity, and more. Feelings that are naturally grouped under the umbrella of <coughs> doubt. And not the skillful sort of doubt that encourages inquiry and investigation, but doubt as a hindrance that can present a formidable challenge to practice. How can I sit quietly doing nothing when the whole world seems to be on fire? You might say to yourself. Sakito Kisan writes elsewhere in the poem, just sitting with head covered, all things are at rest. You might respond, what world is he living in? <laughs> Not this one. That's for sure. I am trying very hard here to not say that any of what I've described so far is bad. I'm just trying to describe the way things seem to me free of any sort of evaluation about whether it's good or bad. And I find that hard to do for reasons I talked about a few weeks ago. So often it's right there, that next step of good or bad, right or wrong, praise or blame. Really trying to hold back from that. What I do want to say, though, is that because of such momentum, it's very, very important for us to find some time to stop to sit, to settle, to quiet down, which might be importantly different from being quiet, and simply be where we are with whatever else is also there, and just for a little while. Can you find 15 minutes a day to do this? Can you find 20 minutes a day to do this? Do you already have this kind of daily practice of just stopping and sitting down for a while? If you do, that's great. And maybe you can share some of the things you learned as you worked to establish that daily practice. If you don't, that's also great. Sometimes we say whatever gets in the way is the way. So if something's getting in the way, fantastic. It's there. You can look at it and you can start working with it. Wherever you are, it's great. Because you know where you are. And that's the first step. I find that sitting first thing in the morning is necessary for me. Um, I wake up almost always early. Um, it's habit at this point, but really it's because I have two cats who don't respect my sleeping schedule and preferences. 
and I wash and I brush my teeth and then I sit. And since it's colder these days, I sit downstairs in my living space. I don't sit up here in the zendo very often. And there's a little section of that space with a zafu and a zabutan, but you could use a seiza bench or a chair. I actually find these days I'm preferring more often a seiza bench. It's a bit more comfortable for me. And there's a little bell in front of my zabutan. Off to the left, there's a small altar. It has an image of the Buddha, a candle, flowers, a place to light incense. There's a bit of a morning ritual here, but I don't want to say that it's automatic and I'm doing it without attention and care. I light the candle, I offer incense, I bow, and then I sit. First thing. I do not do this because it helps the rest of my day go well. Sometimes the rest of my day does not go well, meaning it doesn't go the way I want it to go, right? Somebody didn't do something that I wanted them to do, or I really wanted the last pastry at the coffee shop where I work and somebody else bought it. We have these cake pops that are gluten-free and <laughs> vegan. They go like that. I do not do this for stress relief. I do not do this for productivity or efficiency, nor for fame and fortune, as you might imagine. So why am I doing this? Why is it the first thing I do in the morning? Why are you doing this? Why should you do this? Should you do this? I don't know. It's really not for me to say. Perhaps such wondering about the perishing of the hut doesn't have anything to do with momentum. Perhaps it has to do with fear. What am I afraid of? Such that these thoughts keep coming up. What are you afraid of? I'm reminded of something that Reb Anderson wrote. Reb Anderson is a Dharma teacher in the Suzuki Roshi lineage. He writes, the fundamental human delusion of human beings is the belief that we exist separately and independently from the rest of the universe. There is a whole universe, a human thinks, plus something, and that something is me. When we feel independent and separate from others, we feel anxious about whether they really care about us. We worry that they do not approve of us or support us, and we may be tempted to lie about what we think and feel in order to gain their report, their approval and support. Feeling separate from others and feeling threatened by their lack of approval, we may deny who we really are. I want to add that when we feel anxious about whether others really care about us, 
When we worry that they do not approve of us or support us, we are, to be quite explicit about it, afraid. And from that place, we move almost immediately and sometimes unknowingly to obsessively trying to acquire more than what we have and holding tightly onto what we already do have. We do all of this with the hope that stuff and things, wealth and fame, for instance, will protect us, will provide us with comfort, safety, and security. I cannot sit here and tell you that stuff and things do not protect you. Do not provide comfort, safety, and security. Perhaps I can say that they do not really protect you, keep you safe, but you need to feel the force of that really. The protection and security found in stuff and things pleasure and gain, praise and fame, is temporary at best. It seems more appropriate to say that it's false or illusory. Yet because it seems that there is something found in the acquisition of more and more and preserving what you already have, it can be more challenging to confront what is, Reb says, the root of that fear the belief that we exist separately and independently from the rest of the universe. Another way of saying this is the belief that we're not empty, right? that there's something here that I need to protect. All the more important, it seems to me, for us to sit daily, to practice continually, to find time each day to, as the first edition put it, drop in and see what condition our condition is in. That's for you, Brad and Christine. If an effort is made in this direction, you will not do away completely with the belief or the feeling of existing separately and independently from everything else. You will also not do away completely with thoughts that ask, will this hut perish or not? This practice does not ask us or require us to exclude anything from our lives. It does ask, however, that we find time to stop, to sit down. We sit down with what is pleasant, with what is neutral, with what is painful, whether that manifests as anxiety and fear, frustration and irritation, hopelessness and despair, or however else. We sit down with everything. And in time, we come to see with the eyes of practice that we are separate and independent from nothing whatsoever. Thank you very much.